would this morning grab a hold of a Bible and open it up to the book of Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 102 this morning, and I'm going to read the whole of that psalm to you. Psalm 102. We're in a series on the attributes of God, looking at our God, His greatness and His glory. And our God is indeed glorious, and we're getting a look from these texts, one look and another look and another look, trying to describe this one and perfect God. And Psalm 102 gives us a particular look at this God, a look that we need. So this morning we get the pleasure as God's people of hearing God's word. And so let's give our attention to Psalm 102. Hear the word of our God. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when the peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. You are the same, and your ears have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Oh, Father, we ask for your help this morning. We have your word in front of us, and we are your people, and we want to receive it. And so we ask that you would do a supernatural work, that you would give us listening ears and seeing eyes and receptive hearts. Only you can do this for us, and so we pray. Plant your word in our hearts. Give us hope. Change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The Bible is not a book that just tells us true things. It's not just a book telling just the facts. The grass is green, the sky is blue, it's cold out this morning. It is a book that tells us true things, but it tells us true things in such a way that moves us. The Bible is a unique sort of book. It's a book that aims to grab hold of our hearts, change them, and never let go of our hearts. And as we think about Psalm 102, we just read it, that is what the psalm does. Psalm 102 doesn't simply say life in this cursed world is hard and difficult. No, there's poetry in imagery, images. The the psalm paints with, with full color. It goes after our hearts, our feelings, our emotions. It's chasing after our hearts. And so we can ask this morning, what is it like to live in a cursed world full of sin and trouble? Well, the psalmist answers, he says this in verse 3, My days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. We ask, well, what is life like? We say, it is fleeting. It is like smoke just passing away. The psalmist goes on, verse 11, he says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. We're here for a moment, and then we're gone. Life is short. We, We get that. And the psalmist establishes that point with us, but that is not the, the half of what, the, what life is like in a cursed world. Our lives are short, and they are also short and filled with, with trouble, filled up to the brim. Verse 4, the psalmist says, My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. Just think about that. He's talking about his heart, the seat of his emotional life, the very hub of his inner man, and he is telling us that it is wasted like grass on a, on a hot day. That's his life. And because of this great emotional upheaval in his life, the psalmist forgets to perform the most basic functions of humanity. He tells us in verse 4 that he has forgotten to eat his bread because of this. And it gets worse. Instead of bread, what does he eat? He eats his own grief. Verse 9, I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink. What am I drinking? What am I eating? It's my grief. And it doesn't surprise us that this takes a toll on the psalmist. His health weakens. His body falls apart. Verse 5, because of my loud groanings, my bones cling to my flesh. And because of this, he no longer sleeps anymore and he feels utterly abandoned. He says, verse 7, I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And as we listen to the psalmist speak of his life, he could have certainly spoke more plainly. He could have put away all the poetry, all the metaphor, and he could have just looked at us in the eye and he could have said the facts. He could have said, sin brings forth death. I'm tasting that. He could have said, I'm living in a cursed world, and this cursed world is really hard. It's just hard. And that would be true, but we get a sense that the psalmist wants more for us in this psalm. What is he doing? It's like he's digging into our hearts as he is telling us his life, and he's asking us questions. He's asking us, don't you feel this death at work in your own life? He's asking us, doesn't this curse terrorize you? Don't you feel it? He's asking us, aren't you familiar with these pains and troubles of this life, of this present age? I can't escape it. I'm sure that's the same for you. 
Now, as we listen to the psalmist, there is a spectrum here, and surely the psalmist is on the very extreme end of the spectrum. He is eating a heaping portion of death, and it's just being ladled into his mouth, spoonful after spoonful after spoonful. Trouble is piled up in front of him, and it's like a mountain, and he can't look over it or around it. It's just there. This curse is a weight. It's like a heavy backpack, and it's just pushing him to the floor. And though you may have never felt like that before, these are realities that are truly at work in our present time. Let me tell you, death is real. And it's doing its work even now in your body. Trouble is everywhere. And you can't avoid it in this life. The curse is in all things, all the time. And so as we take stock of this psalm, we can see the psalmist is working on our hearts, and he is doing this, we must see, for a godly reason. The psalmist isn't murmuring, and he doesn't want us to murmur or complain. He is doing this. He is preparing us for God. Because of sin, because of the curse, because of all the troubles of this world, the psalmist knows that he and all of the people of God need a God that is not shackled by the curse or bound by death or limited by any creaturely constraint. He needs a God that is different than the gods of the nations. Their gods, as the psalmist looked out around him, had, had gods that had beginnings and birth stories. It's ridiculous if you read the stories of the gods of the nations. They have birth stories. There were times when these gods were not. And there was something or someone who brought them into being. And the psalmist knows that he needs a God who existed from before the foundation of the earth and who will last until the earth is worn out and done. He needs a God who is above time and beyond time and who can reach into time and save weak and needy people. And this is the God the psalmist points us to. Look at verse 12. The psalmist says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. What is the psalmist's hope? It's this. God's kingly reign is forever. His rule over all things, all places, all peoples will never come to an end. It will never be upset or overthrown. He will reign today and tomorrow and forever and ever and ever. And the psalmist loves this and he wants us to see it. And so he continues on this theme in verses 25 through 27. And here is one of the clearest pictures of our God in Scripture. Listen. The psalmist says this, of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. We see the truth about God here. God did what? He made the heavens and the earth. He's like this master craftsman. He's this great builder. He took the foundations and he laid them for the earth and then he, he formed and he fashioned all things by his own power and word. And here is the point. If God made all of these things and laid the foundations and fastened everything, he is prior to all things. He is before all things. He is the cause of all things. And then the psalmist fixes our attention upon these created things, contrasting them with the Lord. He says, they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. Our clothes, think about a pair of pants. You wear that pair of pants for a while, and what happens? It starts to wear 
All of a sudden you have holes in the knees and other places. And that's the same for all of created reality. They perish, they wear out, they pass away. Even the best and biggest things of this world, picture the biggest and best thing, that will wear out. Everything in this world is given over to decay. And this is the psalmist's point. God is altogether different than everything else. God can't perish. God can't wear out. God can never pass away. And God has no beginning and he has no end. And the psalmist celebrates the truth about God. And here's the high point. He says, but you are the same and your years have no end. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? We can't miss the truth of Psalm 102. He's working on our hearts. He is showing us the trouble and sin and death of this world. And he leads us to the only solution, the eternal God. The psalmist's project is this, to lead you to God. And so here is our sentence this morning. The the psalmist is teaching us it. God is eternal. So that's our sentence for this morning. God is eternal. Eternal, and it's our job this morning to try to understand God's eternality. And so, what is this doctrine of God's eternality? What are we trying to do with this doctrine? Well, this doctrine attempts to describe the plenitude, or we can use another word, the immensity of God's being as his being relates to time. And so, we can say God has no beginning. We can also say God has no end. We can say more that God is above, beyond, over, outside of time. There is no past. There is no future in God himself. There is just the God who is I am. So we need to explore this matter of eternity. And we're going to do this by traveling. So we're going to first travel backwards. We're going to try to reach back as far as we can. And then after we reach back, we're going to try to go forward and we're going to reach and stretch as far forward as we can. And after we go back and go forward, reaching and stretching, we're going to go up to see what this means of God. And so let's start by reaching back. And as we think about reaching back, this is something the Bible likes us to do. In fact, the Bible often counsels us to reach back so that we might understand God. And one of the best examples of this comes in the book of Job. And so there's Job, and the Lord is speaking to him out of the whirlwind. And what the Lord does is he pounds him with questions, and it's a pounding. Just listen to the Lord speak to Job. Job 38, verses 4 through 11. The Lord says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Lord is dealing with Job, pounding him with questions. And the reality is no answer can be given. Job can't answer. Why can't Job answer? Because Job wasn't there. No one was there except for the Lord himself. And that is the point of passages such as these. When we reach back, reaching back as far as we can go, all we can do is point to God. So everything has a starting point. The world and all the things that fill it were created at one point. There was a time 
when this world didn't exist. And this applies to us. There was a time, and it wasn't too long ago, when we didn't exist. But here's the thing. None of this applies to our God. He has no starting point. There was never a time when this God didn't exist. And so when we read our Bibles, there's good reason. He is called the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He is, as Psalm 90, verse 2 puts it, from everlasting. And this doesn't mean that he's just really, really old, Ancient of Days. It means something more profound. It means he is the first one, the one who comes before all things. He is the Alpha, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Or he is the one who is before Abraham, before all things. He's not just was before Abraham. He is the one who is I am before Abraham, as Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 58. And so we can stretch back. We reach back. And what happens? We, we only find God. And the Bible also likes to push us forward. It calls us to stretch, to, to reach towards the future. And so we need to do that as well. So Psalm 102, verse 27, points us forward. It says, your years have no end, speaking of God. So we can think about our own lives. A man, he will grow old, have a few birthdays, and then he will die. Psalm 90, verse 10, tells us that a man's years are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. But God's years have no end. The number of his years, as Job 36, 26 says, are unsearchable. And so while you can easily quantify the the, the number of years of a man's life, you can't do it with God. And the difference continues. And this is so striking. I don't know if you've watched YouTube or listened to podcasts. There are a group of men in our society, in our world, who are searching out longevity. That's all they think about. How can I live longer? How can I eke out more life from this decaying and dead body? And here's the difference between us and God. God is immortal, truly and properly. 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, Paul is praising God and he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Paul is saying there's only one being who is properly immortal and it is God and no one else is. If we can imagine ourselves counting future generations, so if you, you try to strain towards the future and you think of endless ages of the future, one age after another after another, here is the truth. God will inhabit all of them. All of them. And so the Bible counsels us to, to reach back, and the Bible counsels us to, to stretch forward, and that's what we've been doing. We've been following the Scriptures And all of this reaching and stretching causes our minds to hurt. And our minds hurt because we're creatures. We're we're bound by time. We cannot conceive of such a life as our God's that has no beginning and has no end. And here we have to be really careful. Really careful unless we screw this whole matter of eternity up and we misunderstand God. So let me say this. God is not like Superman or Wonder Woman. So if you know Superman folklore, he is said to be essentially immortal. And so the years pass by, hundreds of years pass by, thousands of years pass by, and Superman is still looking young. He's still ripped. He's still flying around the world. He's still doing his sort of thing. But here's the thing, like, here's the thing we must understand. Superman seems different from us, but he is really the same as us. Why? Because he experienced time just as we do. 
Though he keeps living, he experiences time like we do. A day passes by and a week passes by and a year passes by and a century passes by. He just keeps on living. That's the only difference. He's experiencing the same time we do. He just doesn't die. But the Bible won't let us think about God like a superhero. And here is where we need to go up. And here's the truth. God exists above time, beyond time, outside of time. Time is a creaturely reality and it does not properly belong to God's life in God's life itself. So the scriptures push us here and they're pushing us beyond our understanding. Isaiah 57 verse 15 tells us that God inhabits eternity. Where does God live? He lives in eternity. And so here's the idea that we must hold on to. God is not a temporal being experiencing a succession of time like we do. We can't escape the timeline. We're bound in a timeline, past, present, future. And that's how we think about our lives, and that's how we're always going to think about our lives, but not so with God. He doesn't exist in that creaturely sort of way, past, present, future. And this is where our minds really start to hurt, and our words begin to fail us, and we really don't have a good vocabulary how to express this. And so here I want to get some help. And so there's a trio of voices from church history that I want to I pull out for you and employ them for you so that we can think bigger and deeper about our great God. So the first voice that we need to listen to is the voice of Hillary. He was a man, he was a theologian, and he loved to write about God, and he said this about God. It's very helpful. He says this, listen. Run with your senses toward whatever seems ultimate to them. You will always be aimed at him, always moving in his direction. Again, cycle through the centuries. You will always find him. And though you run out of numbers to count his days, God will never run out. Stir up your understanding and embrace his whole being with your mind. You have nothing because he has everything left. And what he has left is always whole. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying? He's giving us counsel. He's telling us to do something. He's saying, max yourself out. So think about the weight room. Put as much weight on as you can as you're thinking about God. Max yourself out. He's counseling. Strain yourself. Run as hard as you possibly can. Sprint after God with all of your senses. And when you are doing this, you're going in the right direction. This is good. Try to count up his years. Try to do it. Number them. That is good. That's the right direction. But get this, in doing this work, you will never attain him as he is in himself. You will never grab hold of him as he exists in his timeless eternity. And Hillary gets at this. This is an elusive sentence, but it's so true, he says. Stir up your understanding and embrace his whole being with your mind. Do it. What's the result? He says this, you have nothing. Why? Because he has everything left, and what he has left is always whole. That's helpful. Now we can listen to a second voice. And the second voice is the voice of Augustine, and he describes God's timeless eternity, and he's going to give us some handles and some understanding. He writes this Eternity is God's very substance, which has nothing changeable. There, Nothing is past as if it now were not. Nothing is future as if it were not yet. Rather, there is nothing there but is. What will be is not yet but there. Whatever is simply is. Now that might not seem like much help to you. It might sound like a word salad. Uh, how does 
How do you saying all these things? The grammar is strange and weird, but we have to understand this. Augustine is, is trying to consider God, and as he considers God, he's, he's bumping up hard against the boundaries of our language and how we think and understand, and he's bumping up, and we can feel it, and we're bumping up with him. And so what is he saying? Well, he's saying this. The past is not something lost to God. Do you think about the past? What, what do archaeologists do? They, they go back to the past, and they're, they're digging, searching to find the past to understand it. The past is not something lost to God, nor is the future something to go out and explore. We imagine time travel. We could go explore the future. What is going to be there? And the future is not something unknown to God. Rather, nothing is past and nothing is future in God. God's eternal being doesn't exist in parts or fragments. Rather, all is to God or to say better, God simply is. He is. So we've got Hillary speaking to us. We've got Augustine speaking to us. We're getting help. And one last voice, I think, brings all of this together in a nice, neat package. And the voice is Boethius. And so he speaks of God's eternality, and he says this. It's the whole, simultaneous, and perfect possession of boundless life. That's important. Let me say it again. It's the whole, simultaneous, and perfect possession of boundless life. What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that there aren't any boundaries to God's life. The past cannot contain him. The future cannot contain him. In fact, these categories, past and future, are not proper boundaries for God because they are mere creaturely realities. God has boundless life, perfect life, and he possesses that boundless life perfectly. He does not possess his boundless life in parts or in measures. He does not not taste a bit of his life now and then taste a bit of his life later and then later again. No, he does not experience his boundless life in successions or in years or months or weeks or days or hours. He possesses the whole of his boundless life all at one time. All at one time. So Boethius says, it's the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. That's amazing. It stretches our minds and we say, glory, glory be unto our God. He is so different than us. He is great. He is perfect. He is perfect. So let's take stock for a moment. What have we done so far? We've reached back and when we reach back, we've learned this. God has no beginning. Glorious. We've also stretched forward. And what have we seen as we've stretched forward? God's there. And God will always be there. There are no end to his days, never. And then we've realized that past and future are not even good categories to understand our God because they are creaturely realities, things that don't actually belong to God's life. And so we've gone up looking at his existence. He possesses his boundless life perfectly. And so we've seen that this applies to his existence. But we must also understand that what we're saying about God's eternality applies to all of God, his whole being. All that is in God is God. And so that means all that in his God is what? Is eternal. So think about this. His love is eternal. His righteousness is eternal. His will is eternal. His power is eternal eternal. And we can go on and on discussing all that is in God and applying this great doctrine of eternality to it. It's glorious. We should do this. But here I want to stop and I want to apply this doctrine in two specific ways 
to us. And so circle back with me to Psalm 102. So as you go back to Psalm 102, do you remember the psalmist's words? Do you remember what he said about sin and death and curse? Did those stir up any feelings in you? Do you remember the language that he used? Did it do anything to your heart and your soul? Do you remember that awful imagery? And here's the question I want to ask. What should creatures like you and me, though we might not taste it like the psalmist does in Psalm 102, we are tasting it in some measure, death and curse and trouble. What should we do? What should we do? I want to give you two answers that deal directly with God's eternality. The first answer is this. You should flee the wrath to come. You should flee the wrath to come. Now, there's nothing more sobering than this, to think about God's righteous judgment that will soon be revealed and encompass all of created reality. And we do not give this the thought it deserves in our minds. Let me paint a picture for you. The arrival of this day is dreadfully fearful, so fearful that all who encounter the beginning of this day will cry out to the rocks and hills this, Revelation 6, 16, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So terrible will this day that men and kings will say, rocks, kill me. I do not want to see this lamb who is full of wrath. And the reality is that it's just the beginning of that great day. And Jesus tells us that there will be a finality of that great day. And the finality of that great day will result in this, Matthew 25, 41. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus tells us it's not just going to be like a great battle, but on day of judgment, the cursed, those who are on the left of the judge, will be cast into this eternal fire. And this lot of punishment will be one of loss and torment. Isaiah says this, chapter 66, verse 24, their worms shall not die or their fire shall not be quenched. And so it will be as Jesus says, Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those are sobering passages, but let me tell you this. It only gets worse when we connect God's wrath with the doctrine of eternality. Think about it like this. God's anger will last forever against the damned. He will never stop being angry with the damned. Never. He will not grow tired. He will not relent. Or think about it like this, he will never grow weak, nor will he ever become distracted so that the condemned might escape. You think about prisons in our world, there are lapses at times and prisoners escape, but not so with God. He is eternal. And here's the worst aspect of it all. There will not be a single drop of hope for the condemned in hell because of the doctrine of God's eternality. Just think, if you're caught out in a bad storm, there's always hope. Why? Because the storm will come to an end at some point. Or you think about a tough season in your life, there's always hope because there's hope that that season will come to an end. There's always hope in the winter. Why? Because you know spring is coming. But when we grasp the doctrine of God's eternality, that great storm of his wrath will never come to an end for those who do not repent of their sins. It won't, and it can't, because God is eternal. And if we have our heads on straight, this should cause us to shudder for it. It is all true. It is gospel truth. 
So what should we do with it? Well, we should use this truth to our advantage. Just think, these verses that I just read to you and described to you are a gift to us in this present time. What is God doing? He is telling us, there is a great day coming. And I'm telling you about it, and I'm painting you, you pictures so that you might grasp it. Why? So that you might not enter into it. And that you might use it for your good and your fight against sin. So I urge you, brother, sister, and Jesus today, use the future of eternity to fight, fight against sin in your life. Use it in your, your battle for evangelism. Use it for godliness in your life. There is a great day coming. What do I want to do? I want to flee it with everything I have, with every fiber of my being. And I want those around me to flee it as well. And so when we get this, it should cause us to run from our sins. Run from our sins. But God's eternality should not just terrify us. For if, all that, if that's all that happens, it means that we have not really understood God's eternality yet. So let's think through Psalm 102 specifically. And so the, the psalmist has mourned his condition. Death is at work in his body. The curse is pressing hard on him. Trouble is before him and it's all he can see. So what does he do with this? Well, in the midst of his lamenting, he's lamenting again and again and again. What does he do? He stops in his tracks, he lifts up his eyes, and he looks to God and he says this. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. And he takes comfort in this doctrine. He's preaching it into his soul. He's resting on it. He's grabbing hold of it. And he says to himself, of old you lay the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You are the same and your years have no end. He's holding on to this doctrine of God's eternality and he won't let go of it. And we ask, how can he do that? Isn't he terrified of this eternal God? His wrath? Why doesn't he run from this God? Well, the answer is this. He has heard the gospel of the eternal God. Why is the eternality of God so precious to him? Because he has heard the gospel word of him. Look at verse 13. The psalmist is rehearsing it to himself and anybody who will listen to him. He says, you will arise. He's speaking about God. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. What has he learned of God? He knows that God is merciful and kind. He forgives sins. He relents. He's preaching to himself. He's preaching to anyone who will listen. And there is more. He knows that this God who has made known this gospel has prepared a way for sinners to come back to him. Look at verse 13, or look at verse 17. He says, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Did you hear that? That is precious good news. He regards the prayer. He pays attention to the prayer of the needy person. And he promises not to despise their prayer. So you see what the psalmist is doing. Here's the truth. Those who take hold of the gospel word and come to the eternal God with humble prayer will receive blessings and salvation of the eternal God. And the result is verse 28. The psalmist says, The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Do you see it? The, the, the matter of God's eternality makes the gospel sweeter and more sure to us. Just think about this. Salvation will be forever because the God of salvation is eternal. 
Our hope is secure. It can never be set aside because the God of our hope, the principal object of our hope is eternal. These blessings, salvation and life and resurrection and a coming new age and new earth, they fill us with hope. Why? Because the God who gives these blessings is eternal. And so what does the psalmist do? Well, he has heard the gospel of the eternal God. He has made use of the means the eternal God has given him. And what does he do? He says, you are the eternal God, and you alone are my hope. You alone are my hope. And I, I come to you, and I hope in you. And so what's the call this morning? Where does Psalm 102 leave us? Where does the doctrine of God's eternality leave us? Well, it should leave us with this. Hear this call. Flee the wrath to come. What I mean is this. Don't dally about with your sins playing with them, holding on to them, keeping them, thinking they're precious. Take this truth to heart. God's wrath will soon be revealed and will come upon all of those who do wrong. If you're a wrongdoer, God's wrath will swallow you up. So flee from the wrath to come and use the doctrine of God's eternality to help you do that. But there's more here. Don't stop with that. Just don't flee the wrath to come. Flee towards something. Flee towards the eternal God. Take hold of his gospel of peace. Make use of the means that he has given you. And take, take hold of those promises. He will not refuse my prayer. He won't do it. And then do this. Enjoy the eternal God. Even in the midst of your sorrow and trouble. For the eternal God gives eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for Psalm 102. We need its sobriety. And we need its sobriety to affect our hearts. We often don't feel properly what's actually happening around us and in us. And so awaken us. But I do pray, would you move us towards the Lord Jesus this morning? For in him we have life and salvation and hope. Would you teach us to live like the psalmist, to see your, your eternality and to know its sweetness? Oh, Father, give us faith like that man to turn to you in the midst of our trouble, to hope in you. Oh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.